Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody, whoever, whoever everybody is. This is Dr. Simon. This is the show called <clears throat> The Stories We Live By. And this afternoon, I have a very special guest, uh, an individual I've known professionally uh, for many years now. Uh, his name is Richard Schulman. He is a Ph.D., a licensed clinical psychologist, and he helped found Volunteers in Psychotherapy after doing a decade's work at Hartford Hospital Institute of the Living's Outpatient Clinic. That's a mouthful. <laughs> where he provided psychotherapy and supervised and trained psychologists and other therapists. He also served on the hospital's IRB for roughly 20 years overseeing ethical and informed consent issues in medical and psychiatric research. His work in constructing VIP, which is Volunteers in Psychotherapy, led to the Connecticut Psychological Association 2000 Award for Distinguished Psychological Contribution in the Public Interest and the 2003 Award of the American Institute of Medical Education. VIP has now successfully provided strictly private and non-medicalized, and we'll talk about what that means, therapy, for over 20 years with clients earning their therapy by privately and independently providing volunteer work at the community charity, nonprofit, or government agency of their choice. Welcome, Rich. Hey, I appreciate you having me on the show. My pleasure. And, and I think that this discussion will be a very important one uh, because what you're doing, in my view, is revolutionary. And we'll get to talk about what it means to give non-medicalized service to people. But yep. first, tell me a little bit about the organization and how you came up with this idea. Sure. Well, uh, this came out of a couple of things. First, I had been working at what was essentially a poor person's clinic at a downtown hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. I'd done my internship there in the mid-'80s and uh, came back to work there several years later. Um, And we saw people who came in and out of state hospitals, people who came out of the emergency room, basically folks who didn't have private insurance, by and large, Um, and people who had had often significant difficulties in their life. And it didn't seem like a good system bureaucratically to see people uh, for a number of reasons. And I had some friends who were psychologists, and we used to like to get together and talk about the work we were doing at different local uh, hospitals and clinics. And we always said to each other that these places are not set up well for offering therapy. They don't offer people privacy. They don't treat people with respect. They assume that people need to have some type of uh, uh, parentalized or parole-like relationship instead of Mm -hmm. uh, treating them as equals. Uh, And they didn't – it wasn't a model where people came in of their own choice and volition and, in a sense, paid something for the services of somebody else. Instead, it was a system where uh, they were deemed to be defective mental patients and they were quickly put on disability. And then someone else paid for them to come in to uh, have uh, to receive medication or perhaps to have therapy if they wanted it. But it wasn't private. 
there were a lot of problems in terms of how staff dealt with them. And so these friends of mine and I often would say to each other, we'd, we'd talk, we, had, we felt we had pretty good training in graduate school and in our internships, but we always thought we could set up a better system than this. And the system that we had was taken from something that you heard about in clinical lore. And here, here's what I mean. You'd sometimes hear a private practitioner, a psychologist say something like, you know, I was working with uh, somebody in therapy and they lost their job or they lost their insurance. Maybe that uh, therapist used to get paid 100 bucks an hour. And they might say to the client, John Doe, hey, look, John, I know you lost your job, your insurance. I'll see you for 20 bucks an hour, but I'll ask you to do good work in the community as a way of sort of paying for symbolically your therapy. So you go pick a place, some charity where you want to volunteer, and if you're doing that, I'll, I'll see you while you don't have uh, you know, income or you don't have insurance uh, for a much lower rate. And the other psychologists and I thought, wouldn't this be a great exchange model where if you just said to anyone in the community who wanted strictly private therapy a chance to talk about their heartache, their confusion, secrets that they wouldn't talk to anyone else about. People, of course, this was the era of managed care in which insurance companies could demand reports about people's mm-hmm. private discussions if they were going to pay for somebody to be in therapy. And they also required that you give a psychiatric label to people, which then became part of their permanent medical records. So Forever. Forever. So an element forever. of what we did was to say, let's not work with insurance at all. All we need is a private place to work with people. And so to go back to the volunteer work, we institutionalized this. That is, we set up our own bureaucracy, our own nonprofit, which is what VIP is. It's a tax-exempt, IRS-approved uh, charity, a nonprofit that serves the community. And we say to anyone who wants therapy, you earn it by doing volunteer work in the community at a place of your choice. So you pick a charity, a nonprofit, a government agency, just like you said, which means people could volunteer in a public school, a public hospital, a public library. They could work at a a senior center, an agency that helps the blind, a hospital, a soup kitchen, a a, a shelter. They pick the place. The person doesn't have Mm -hmm. to mention that organization in the least that their volunteer work is earning them therapy through our organization. But in exchange for people doing a substantial amount of good work helping other people at some place that's meaningful to them or that they enjoy doing, that Mm -hmm. earns them therapy. And that's the basic model that we've been doing this summer. It'll be 20 years now that we've uh, done this. That's terrific. Now, who did you go to for the funding of this operation? Sure. Well, we're like any other nonprofit. You, You apply to the IRS to become a charity, and you have to constantly uh, at first you do a bunch of paperwork to show them that you are a public trust uh, that you are not lining your pockets but are providing a service in the community and if you are deemed by them to be a tax-exempt entity then um, you can receive tax-deductible donations so individuals have always provided about 40 percent of our funding who just want to support us the same that somebody might give money to the Red Cross or they might give money to any other charity that they want to mm-hmm. support on a tax-deductible basis. Plus, uh, I'd mention this to you, um, Larry, that uh, there are small family foundations, that is, charitable funders or foundations that uh, families in the greater Hartford area have set up 
this used to be an industrial area that was wealthy. It, it now is one of the poorest in the, uh, cities in the country. Right. I, know. Uh, I know. But there are still these family foundations who want to do good with their money, and they support people who are doing good work in the community. So uh, that's uh, where the bulk of our funds come. Uh, and our model is that we do pay the therapist something. We, paid, we used to pay $45 a session to participating therapists. Uh, now we pay $55. But, so nobody is getting rich off this. Right. right away, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> you can't get rich. You know, this is America, kiddo. You have to be able to get rich. Let, let me ask you, are there guidelines from the IRS as to just how much money you or the therapist can take as income? Uh, well, uh, Or is it up to they, your discretion? Well, th- that's an interesting question. There are, most hospitals pay their CEOs about a half million to a million dollars a year. So as long as a nonprofit is deemed not to be lining its profit uh, its pockets they can pay what's considered uh, uh standard rates so that you know that's why hospitals can pay physicians who mm-hmm. make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year we've never had that type of funding so in our system we've always uh you know it's sort of a mutual set of sacrifices or public good that's going on there there are three parts to it uh in a sense our clients are all earning their therapy sessions by doing typically four hours of volunteer work to earn every therapy session. So mm-hmm. our clients are really sacrificing something and doing something pro-social, helping out somehow in the community. The therapists are agreeing to receive a, you know, what's about a half to a third, maybe even a quarter of what they might make in private practice. And our funders recognizing this, they provide the funds that allows this sort of tripartite uh, system to go on. Mm -hmm. Are you still doing direct therapy? Yeah, I do it all through VIP. So I'm one of, right now, there are six, uh, there are four licensed uh, clinical psychologists in Greater Hartford who we work with. Uh, I'm one of them, and a social worker and a licensed professional counselor. Uh, And over the years, we've, we've had some other folks, too. We had a uh, semi-retired psychiatrist who offer, also offered uh, private therapy uh, mm-hmm. through VIP. And, and also, for what it's worth, we sort of function as what they call a clinic without walls. So there are VIP clients who never meet me, even though I'm the administrator of the organization. They may go directly to seeing another therapist in another town around here, uh, and they see people through their various uh, private offices. Right, and, and the, right. And the participating therapists may only, you know, this is sort of their charitable bit, too, giving back to the community. They may only see one, two, or three VIP clients. They decide that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is fascinating and important, extremely important. What are your views on the whole idea of saying to somebody, you are mentally ill, the illness that you have is a uh, function of some aberrant, abnormal brain chemistry, and you're going to have to take a medication that uh, supposedly fixes that brain dysfunction, reorganizes the chemicals in your brain, and you'll have to do this for the rest of your life. 
Because well, that is, in effect, the model that you and I grew up with and had to work under, or at least you did until you got out of that system. Right. Uh, well, it'll take a couple minutes, but I'd be happy to say uh, what I think about that system. Basically, I think it lies to people. And I'll, I'll tell you, uh, that's uh, I had mentioned to you, Larry, that I served on an institutional review board at Hartford Hospital, and it oversaw the Institute of Living also. Uh, uh, I was on that committee for about 20 years. There's a doctrine within medicine that's called informed consent, which means basically you're supposed to tell the patient the truth about their condition. So if somebody comes in and they have a problem in their knee, you're supposed to be extremely specific with them about all the options they have. You're supposed to tell them, you know, do they have a pinched nerve, a broken bone, do they have a bruised muscle? And then you're supposed to leave it up to them. That's the consent form. But uh, Mm -hmm. you're supposed to really leave it to the client, the patient, what they choose to do. But you're supposed to accurately inform them about what it is their condition is and what their options are and all the pluses and minuses that would be uh, relevant to that decision. I mean, it's, it's based on the fact that there's a power imbalance and a knowledge imbalance. So we're, right. we're not, we are not supposed to lie to our clients in some way that might be in our interest. It's really a, a very important decision for them to make. And, you know, in those uh, 20 years especially that I was on that committee overseeing research, Psychiatric researchers admitted to each other all the time that there was no identifiable tissue pathology uh, that right. was what we call mistakenly and misleadingly mental illness, implying that it's an illness and vaguely implying that it relates to people's brain or their right. neurological system or uh, to their uh, neurotransmitters in some way. You see, you know, there's another, there's a logical thing here too. So I've been working on this, uh, you know, for many, many years, and it's a simple logical trap you can get out of by recognizing that if a person really did have some chemical imbalance, if it could be shown that confusion and anxiety and fear and making all kinds of mistakes with your life because it was the best you knew how to do under those circumstances, if they all were really due to something biological, then they wouldn't be mental illnesses. Right. They'd be regular medical illnesses. That's right. They'd be neurological illnesses. That, that would gives be lie. Dealt with by... mm-hmm. That gives lie. Behavior in and of itself can't be an illness. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. So that should be the end of the story. But when you say that many therapists or people lie about this, don't most of the people you and I meet professionally don't believe they're lying? They're caught in an illogical idea and say all the time that they, that people they work with have a mental illness and in fact couldn't be paid because if you are being paid by a third-party payer who demands that this come in on a medical protocol with a, a, a pseudo-medical, what we you and I know is a pseudo-medical diagnosis, mm-hmm. they couldn't earn their living. The field mm-hmm. would collapse. 
Well, you know, one of the co-founders of VIP, if the, when I mentioned earlier some psychologist friends and I, one of them is a fellow named Mark Burrell, who in fact wrote an article on this very issue. I think he called it the hypocrisy of health insurance uh, and the medical model. And, mm-hmm. this was, and this is something that psychiatrists, some of them, used to admit. Uh, you know, people like Thomas, uh, no, uh, Theodore Liz and other people, right. and Thomas Dawes. Uh, and and many other people before this, uh, the field sort of asks us to overlook this huge flaw in in logic uh, by which it functions. But you know, many uh, bright uh, therapists and analysts and uh, psychiatrists decades ago pointed out that this was a flawed uh, view, uh, and empirically, it's continued to be unconfirmed. In other words, even uh, in 2011. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Ronald Pease, is it, or Pies? Uh, a a very know. prominent uh, physician admitted that there had never been any evidence behind the idea of a chemical imbalance. But uh, I assume you've had the same experience that I've had, that people coming for services often come into my office and tell me that they've been told by other mental health professionals that they have a chemical imbalance even though there's no assay of uh, any of their uh, bodily mm-hmm. fluids or uh, neurotransmitters right. or anything that demonstrates there that. There are no and tests. Research. I'm sorry? There's not one medical test. You know, yeah. I've been in the field now for it's the past 50 years. Mm-hmm. And every year I've been in the field, somebody has come up with some kind of marker, a biological marker, that was going to be the breakthrough <laughs> to demonstrate there was something physiological uh, mm-hmm. in causing, let's say, the, the more dramatic types of, of, of diagnoses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Right. I remember I was in graduate school, so this is now the late 60s, and my professors got all excited. Somebody had done a study that there was something about the um, blood vessels in the fingertips of schizophrenics that was different from non-schizophrenics. Mm-hmm. And this was just one of the millions of things, and a year later, six months later, it was gone. It had no, no validity, it had no correlation, it had no, no follow-up, it had no uh, uh, independent verification of whatever studies we used. To, to, but it goes on and on and on and on. Right. And what you've done, you see, this is what I find so terrific um, and, and I'm really out of the field at this point. I'm really very fully retired. Uh, what you've done becomes a model that can just walk, walk, create the conditions, particularly the economic conditions, for people to earn a decent salary and keep their conscience clear and not have to convince themselves of, of, of this, this delusion that mm-hmm. somebody is sick and permanently sick if they have difficulty solving life problems. Right. Um, it, it's a tremendous model. It really is. Sure. And, and also, just to – go ahead. It's also – see, one of the – I'm writing a book now uh, that embeds our psychology in the politics that we live with. And in an authoritarian system, somebody of power tells somebody without power or less power uh, that there's something about them that has to be inferior 
So they were made this way so that they have to accept that the person in power can eat while the other person does the work for him to eat. I mean, and this is all throughout human history. The thing that changed was the rise of democracy, in which the notion is uh, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you put it in that context, the medical model is essentially authoritarian. And what you're doing is bringing a genuine democracy to people who then actually become active citizens in the democracy by going and doing this kind of volunteer work. They're getting better, in effect, because they see themselves as active citizens and don't have, to under, don't have to listen to somebody saying, this is your place in the hierarchy. You stay there. Mm-hmm. Hey, Larry, can I br- bring up a, a corollary to this that I, I think uh, Anything you wish. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, you mentioned these severe-sounding diagnoses as part of the thing mm-hmm. – part of the one element of what makes the lay public convinced uh, that there are such things as mental illnesses. And I I would tell you that uh, besides the fact that there's never been, as we were both saying, any physical tests for these supposed quasi-diseases, what happens, we call people psychotic if we don't understand where they're coming from. In other words, if we don't understand why someone is speaking strangely at first, Uh, or saying things that don't seem on the surface to be logical or realistic, uh, Mm -hmm. or if they act in a way that uh, seems inscrutable to us, you know, of course, there might be a small percentage of people who, say, have a thyroid disorder, and that's why they're feeling so low or so seemingly depressed. But a lot of people don't wear their heart on their sleeves. And if people, you know, it came to be confirmed in this when I was working in that outpatient clinic where we saw people who came in and out of uh, state hospitals in the emergency room, many people hint at poetically or metaphorically or obliquely what's really troubling them. Uh, And uh, so many times, uh, this is where I credit good training. I'm really grateful for the things I read and some of the professors I had in grad school about how to listen for uh, things that people are hinting at uh, ambivalently. That is, they half want you to know, and they're half scared to death uh, about you knowing. You know, we think about, you know, the Me Too movement has brought to light just how much sexual abuse there is of children. And, you know, the same things happened within the Catholic uh, Church and, you know, some other authoritarian churches. So all I'm getting at is, Many times there are experiences that kids or young adults have had that just knocks them for a loop. People who had secret trauma that happened to them, you know, many times we don't know even in our neighbors' households how kids are being raised, if there's violence going on, if people are out of control. Right, right, right. right. We don't know. And and the human being who comes out of that uh, crucible, somebody who grows up, with secrets that are driving them crazy, that scare them the hell out of them uh, about themselves, may only uh, venture communication about that 
in oblique and uh, uh, camouflaged ways. And uh, it's, uh, I realize this sounds sort of abstract, but many people who get these severe-sounding diagnoses are, are people who are just really tangled up uh, with these types of secret experiences that have happened in their life that are really troubling to them. And if you start to have an honest conversation over time, if somebody tests you as a therapist to see if you're picking up on their clues, and also if you pick up especially on uh, criticisms of what you're doing with them or things that hint at their fear about right. how you're relating absolutely. to them, they, you know, there's that old famous line by Harry Stack Sullivan about the people who we call schizophrenic turning out to be more human than otherwise. I'm right. angling. Oh, no, we're all a, more human than otherwise. Right. I it, think it, that, it, it adds to that, uh, Sullivan. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, you know, but, I go ahead. Finish up. I'm sorry. I just just to finish it. These folks sometimes are very uh, good candidates for therapy. If you're yes. looking to figure out what's going on with this human being, and if you treat somebody like a human being, uh, if you know you were talking about democracy, I think about the idea of free markets, a fair exchange. You know, unlike what happens as you talk about authoritarianism in psychiatry, we make clear to people that we are not here to lock them up; that they are they are voluntary mm-hmm. clients of ours. They can fire us which is crucial. They can, if they meet with us and they find it unhelpful or they want to run or they just want to step back from meeting in therapy, this is not parole. This is their choice to earn therapy with us uh, through their active right. volunteer work. And that right. sets therapy on a framework that's sort of egalitarian. It's equal. And if they get something out of these ongoing discussions, you know, the whole aim is to help liberate people to get greater perspective on what might be going on with them and, uh, yes, and indeed. To, to make sense of it. I'm sorry? Now, I, I had a very interesting experience. A big piece of my work life was at Flushing Hospital, the mental health clinic in Queens. Mm-hmm. And about 10 years, when we first got there, when I first got there in 68, 70, I worked there till 1995, um, it was an outpatient clinic, mostly Irish working class people, because the neighborhood was that. Mm-hmm. That neighborhood changed, and a lot of Asians came in. And the Asians are not uh, yet convinced, most of them, that the best way to handle people in trouble is through psychiatry. So the clinic was in all kinds of desperate trouble. At the same time, they deinstitutionalized Creedmoor, which is a state hospital in Queens. Mm-hmm. And we became the outpatient clinic for these individuals who are now released from the hospital on the condition that they seek therapy. And it was there that, by the way, that was a trauma for the entire staff, you know, psychoanalytically trained, behavior trained. All of a sudden, there were crazy people going to come in here who are un- incurable and only need medication. I started to work with these individuals. What I discovered is that what we call schizophrenia, delusions and hallucinations, mm-hmm. in almost every case started with some kind of terrible, awful event. Mm-hmm. And these were the ways they dealt with the event. These were all adaptive actions. Mm-hmm. We would call them maladaptive, but for them they were adaptive. I'll give you an example. 
a woman comes in one day and she was paralyzed on one side. And I said, what happened? And she now tells me the story. She was Korean. When she was uh, a, a little girl, the father, who had 10 children and was a heavy drink and alcoholic, and he would beat the shit out of the kids. None of them had their teeth left by the time they were adolescent because he would pick one and start punching them in the face. And there was nothing to stop this. So it was a horror show. She went away, to, ran away from home because she couldn't take the beatings or the screams of her brothers and sisters and mother, and she went to Seoul, Korea, and there the only thing a semi-literate teenager could do, she became prostitute. Mm-hmm. Long story short, she marries an American, a soldier who brings her to America and abandons her. She then goes back into prostitution and immediately is diagnosed with AIDS. So now she's dying. She said one day she's walking in the street and the feeling of aloneness was so great that she, her nose started to bleed. Now, if you put yourself into her shoes, and that's what you and I do as a therapist when we throw away the diagnosis. You're not treating anybody. Mm-hmm. At this moment, Mother of God, Mary, the mother of God, appeared to her to follow her. And she followed the mother of God onto the East River Drive where she was hit by a car, which caused the paralysis on one side. And she was dying now. But she said, this is the best year of my life. I've eaten well. I sleep in a clean bed and nobody beats me. I'm sorry, this is not a disease, Rich. Right. This is a desperate attempt to deal with unbearable pain. And I have dozens and dozens and dozens of the same kind of stories. Yes. We have to leave that model. We right. just have to. No, I, <laughs> and I, you're I, showing a way to do it. And that's why I hope that thousands and thousands of people who are still involved with the field or understand what we're saying here, set up something similar. Yep. You have suggestions to expand this? Yeah, but I, I think one of, the, uh, one of the impediments to moving forward, you're right, has to do with uh, sort of the viewpoint of the therapist. Uh, if the therapist thinks that their work is not about trying to find out who this human being is that I'm yes. dealing with and what their heartache might be or or the idea that people may communicate their you know unbearable stress or or heartache in a in a very complex and uh, indirect way then they may make it into a, a rote intellectual exercise like you say where they just assume that the person is uh, deficient diseased or something like that yeah uh, but uh, and then you don't want to work with them yeah i i discovered during that 15-year period that some of the best people i've ever worked with some of the most interesting were people who had been diagnosed uh and and, and by the way I have interesting secret i had a woman that i work with she got out of the hospital and and um she hated being on the drug she had been an executive very high-paying job but she had a younger brother, a mother who got depressed when the husband walked out of the family. 
And she now had to take care of the younger brother. And then he became drug addicted and eventually died of an overdose for which she felt responsible. Mm-hmm. And she was going to commit suicide because she couldn't stand the guilt and the anger, all kinds of stuff. Went into the hospital. Why she was diagnosed as schizophrenic, I don't know. But with this diagnosis, she was given the medicine, which she hated. And she was told, the only thing you can do with your life now is take your medication and have a stress-free life. No challenges, no development, no, no new goals. And she hated it. But so what she did, she lied to the psychiatrist for 20 years until I started to see her without taking pills. She never had another hallucination. She never had another uh, 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 desperate incident after that. It it didn't happen. It was all make-believe. But she had internalized that belief and was trapped. Um, It's a tyranny. (laughs) Am I being too strong in my words? Because that's how I feel. It's a tyranny. No, these two examples you give are so similar to situations I've dealt with with people. Like you say, people, uh, you know, you give the example here of someone who feels they were responsible for the death of of a sibling. Yes. You know, that's a reminder to people listening, I hope, of the types of powerful, frightening, shameful uh, feelings that people can be dealing with that both keep them tongue-tied about, you know, Mm -hmm. people don't normally wear their hearts on their sleeves when they've got emotional tangles like this going on. And, uh, but, uh, you know, this is the type of thing that certainly drives people round the bend. But on the other hand... Uh, you know, the people we work with uh, can be so appreciative if you're starting to get in the ballpark of understanding what they are saying that they're coping with. And right. I, I assume that you, as the same as I do, find this type of work to be really gratifying because you, you are doing important work, having these conversations with people, helping them to make sense of humanly understandable dilemmas that they are in. Exactly. And, and then exactly. you're right. But I, you have to I, see I, it from that point of view, that everything yeah. anybody does that's motivated behavior is motivated by a desire for them to make it better because they can't bear the position that they're in. Mm-hmm. By the way, the story has a sad ending. I'm going to tell you the story's ending. Um, I worked with her for two years, and one of the things that she missed was work, and having a real life, and she loved entertaining. She was also a gourmet cook. She had been, by the way, an outstanding student. She was a gourmet cook, and she used to have regular dinner parties and entertain. So after two years, I sort of had her see that maybe this was not as hopeless as it would be, and she made a dinner party. She was going to have a dinner party. She was very excited about it. In fact, her face changed human expression came back to the face rather than, you know, that, that look of sullen anger and uh, that comes out of self-hatred and a fear that something bad's going to happen if you try to act differently than your role as the permanent patient. She planned this dinner party. I come in for a session with her the day after the dinner party was to take place, and she's no longer on my list of patients. But I have a note. I have to come to a meeting with my director, who was a friend of mine, and the psychiatrist who was treating her. She had gone into her medication appointment meeting 
and said that she was so excited to do this that she had trouble sleeping the night before. He immediately told her, this is a sign of your having another breakdown. You have to cancel the dinner party. He doubled her medication and took her away from me. My director caved because the medical director of the hospital said, this is wrong therapy. I come into this meeting and I almost punch this man because we didn't like each other for a variety of reasons, this being one. And he said to me, she's a schizophrenic. This is all she could ever hope for. Mm. I went back to my office. I cried and I wrote my letter of resignation. And after that afternoon, I walked out. I will never work there again. A month or two later, I talked to one of my friends there. They had now made the medication appointments in the round, publicly in the round. You had a group medication appointment. And right. the directive from the hospital was the goal of all therapy is to see that the patients are compliant with their medication. <laughs> True story. Oh, it, it absolutely rings true with what I experienced at uh, Hartford Hospital, Institute yes. of Living, yes. and some other hospitals I've worked at. Yes. Uh, this, yes. This, that, what you said sort of, you know, at the beginning when you asked me, why did you set up VIP? It was these types of ridiculous uh, attitudes in hospitals and amongst uh, some of the other institutions where my psychologist friends were work, who were working that convinced us that maybe we had to have control of setting up a system that was humane and that was focused on understanding people instead of, you know, all of these ridiculous uh, things that you're describing. And I absolutely recognize that. And you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't know you 25 or 30 years ago, although mm -hmm. 30 years ago, I don't think we were, you know, at the same place in our career. Right. that I couldn't have listened to you and then thought, I could probably do this too, what you've done. Because it would have been a game changer for my career and it would have been a game changer for my life. Although what saved me is that I was also a full-time professor mm -hmm. and I taught. So it wasn't, I wouldn't have all my economic bag, you know, all my economic eggs in that same awful basket. Because mm -hmm. uh, that would have been... But, but, but what you've done, I think, is so incredible. I can't stop saying it. It's really incredibly important well, socially. Actually, actually, before, Larry, I, I thought you were uh, asking me to get at something that you and I know, which is that uh, the VIP website has uh, an area on it uh, that is uh, labeled uh, export initiative. And what it is is it's uh, the offer to other therapists in other regions to help them set up something like this that would be completely independent. We don't want to sort of franchise this or be on top of other people's work, but we do right. want to help people think through how they might either replicate what we're doing or take some aspects of it and, you know, make their own creative adaptations of it so that they can set up systems to <laughs> offer good therapy to people in other uh, areas. Let me, I'm going to give the, I want to put the website, I'll, I'm going to put it on my, I'll put it on my site, but I'm going to give it over sure. the air. Would you be willing if people called you to be a consultant to them in how to do this? Oh, yeah. Well, in fact, uh, Larry, uh, over the years, there were a few times when we got some big publicity about VIP. The New York Times wrote an article about us. 
the APA monitor uh, two times, I think, wrote an article, and that brought in lots of calls. And we offered to speak to people uh, roughly 100 times. I had a one-hour consultation with therapists in other regions to brainstorm with them about what they might uh, develop. And on our website is an offer. You'll see where we would do substantial ongoing for a year or two consultation with people because we do have a little bit of funding that would be dedicated to that so that, for instance, if somebody calls us from Topeka, Kansas or New Mexico or wherever, especially if they set up a team of people where they might set up their own nonprofit to do this type of work, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. We, would, we would do like an ongoing uh, consultation with them, like where every week, two weeks, every month, we have phone consults over the phone to help them develop something like that and then go off and do independently their work. And that's, as I say, on the VIP website, that's under export initiative. Terrific. Let me give the, uh, the uh, site. Yep. Uh, it is C as in cat, T as in Tom, V as in either victory or victim, I as in idea, P as in Paul, dot O-R-G, dot org. C-T-V-I-P dot org. I hope you get a thousand hits by tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Anyway, um, it's been great to talk with you. Likewise. I think if there's nothing else. Well, it's, you, it's you know, almost cocktail time. <laughs> hey, you know, Larry, when when you were describing some of these folks that you worked with years ago, if you ever wanted to do another uh, discussion like this of people who get labeled psychotic or schizophrenic or get one of these uh, frightening-sounding labels that implies, you know, that they have a brain disease, you know, I have I've written about this, too, examples of what the underlying problem was that was going on and, uh, you know, sort of disguised case examples so that it really rings true, but, you know, it's been anonymized a bit so that there's no worry about uh, privacy. If, if you ever wanted to do a discussion like that uh, in another uh, uh, blog oh, uh, like this, uh, you know, well, that I'll tell could you be right another now, thing. I, I'm, I'm working on a book. I've written three books on this topic. And all three were really uh, aimed at arguing with professionals about this. Mm-hmm. And my books are now in lots and lots of university libraries gathering dust. The last one was, is on the internet. You know, it's an iBook as well as a, mm-hmm. a, a hardcover. This time I'm writing one that is uh, for an educated general population. And what happened was I started one of my shows. I talk about this all the time. If you go into the archive of the show, I talk about this all the time. And one of the shows, I said, you know, I'm going to try to define what mental health is because no one ever tries to define mental health. A mental health institution doesn't say anybody is healthy. They have to get a diagnosis so everybody is mentally ill. So I've been struggling to write that, and a new book came out. A whole book has come out about it, uh, in which I embed it in, in the idea of politics shaping personality and then the crises that people experience that they use these kinds of ideas uh, to get themselves out of and then end up getting into more trouble. And the ultimate trouble is to find yourself 
with some psychiatrist who looks over your head as he's trying to figure out what diagnosis to give you and what pill to put you on. Um, so I want to concentrate on that at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I can finish this. I, have, I sent it to my old publisher, and they sent it to their division of, of uh, general uh, books, and I got a nice letter back uh, that they're pleased to inform me that they want to see the rest of the book. Oh, so it didn't scare good. them off. I was talking to Chuck Ruby. Um, uh-huh. His book scared, you know, I, my book too, all these three books, when I first sent them out. I would get, I had Springer Publishers, a scientific publisher, said, we loved your first book, but we can't publish it. It'll upset the membership, some of our readers. Mm-hmm. I said, are you a religious organization or are you a scientific organization? Yeah. Uh, and there was silence at the other end. So I'm going to finish the book, but I really would like to continue a discussion with you. Uh, I've done some now with, uh, I did Al Gals, a discussion mm-hmm. that was, I thought, terrific. He's, mm-hmm. he's really a wonderful fellow and, and on the right side of history with this mm-hmm. um, and some others. And I, I would like to do So let's keep in mind when we can do this um, again. Sure. And we'll keep in contact. Sure. And thanks, thanks for having me on. You know, we, we think this is a great way, that VIP is a great way to see people in therapy. And so any chance we get, we, we really appreciate being able to put this in front of the well, public. Through this your, is certainly uh, not here. only my pleasure, it's my honor. Sure. Because I think that what you're doing is, is not only uh, helping people and saving people, but what you're doing is saving yourself. Because I think the field could be obliterated by these big drug companies taking over and making everything, you know, people conv- being convinced that there's no other way to go. Um, and I think that uh, what we're confronting politically, in my view, is that we've got to save our democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is involved in all three, at all three levels. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say good night. Yep. And thanks, thank you. Thanks again. For having me on and, the show and giving me a chance to talk about VIP. And good luck. I will talk again, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Bye bye.